Are you ready for God's Word this morning? We're going to pick it up where we left off, and I'm going to take you to Ecclesiastes chapter 7, read for you the first 10 verses, and then talk to you about wisdom, wisdom, the whole theme of wisdom and folly. So let's go to Ecclesiastes chapter 7, I read for you from verse 1. And you will see a series of contrasts, a series of uh, proverbs, if you like, and they, are, they sound very contradictory, so you just um, um, follow along with me and it will make sense of this. A good name is better than fine perfume, and the day of death better than the day of birth. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, for death is the destiny of everyone. The living shall take this to heart. Frustration is better than laughter. Now, that alone will cause all your, uh, your, 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 your mind to start running. How can that be, right? Frustration, he said, is better than laughter because a sad face is good for the heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of moaning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. It is better to heed the rebuke of a wise person than to listen to the song of fools. Like the crackling of thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of fools, and this too is meaningless. Extortion turns a wise person into a fool, and a bribe corrupts the heart. The end of a matter is better than its beginning, and patience is better than pride. Do not be quickly provoked in your spirit, for anger resides in the lap of fools. Do not say, why were the old days better than this? For it is not wise to ask such questions. Lord, we pray that you will come and speak to us this morning. Those words written by the wise men so many years ago, they seem to wrap us up the wrong way, but yet we know that, Lord, you have a message for your people this morning. And so will you come and speak to us and allow us to see wisdom, wisdom that comes from above. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Amen. There's a little boy that came to the mother one day and said, Mom, I got a tummy ache. And so the mom very wisely said to him, you know, said, the reason why you have a tummy ache is because your tummy is empty. You just need to go and eat something, fill it up, and then you'll be, you, you'll be okay. So the boy did that, and true enough, he recovered, and he was all good. That evening, the pastor came to visit the family. So the moment the pastor came in, the first thing he said to the family was this, I have a bad headache. And the little boy immediately turned to the pastor and said, the reason why you got a headache is because it is empty. You just have to fill it up and then you'll get better. <laughs> and what's my point? Here's my point. One of the problems we have in modern Christianity is that we do not cultivate the ability to think, the ability to reflect, the ability, as it were, to fill up our heads with wisdom, and as a result, we don't always live with wisdom. How many of you agree? Right? We don't always live with wisdom. And here in chapter 7, the wise man begins to turn to the subject of wisdom. As you're observing life, he came to inevitably to this concept of wisdom. What is wisdom? Does wisdom make sense? And here, as you begin to look at wisdom, you notice that things became slightly more positive. Because up to this point, he said a lot of rather negative things, but, he's, but now as he come to explore wisdom, he became a little, little bit more positive. Uh, in this area of wisdom, you notice that you begin to see this word, it is better, it is better, this phrase, right? It is better, it is better, keeps coming up. 
because he's now beginning to see some positive things. And his conclusion about wisdom is basically this, that wisdom is better than folly. It's better to live with wisdom than to live with foolishness. Now, as he begins to look into wisdom, and we're going to take two weeks to actually look at this theme of wisdom. Uh, this week, we're going to look at the, the first 10 verses, and then next week, Pastor Arthur will take us into the rest. Now, Solomon, you notice, as he began to explore wisdom, he began by quoting a series of Proverbs, right? It's a whole series of Proverbs. Now, what are Proverbs? Proverbs are basically pictorial statements to pass on wisdom through the generation, right? How do we pass on wisdom? It's by coming up with idioms. We come up with Proverbs, okay? And it, they are pictorial statements, statements that paint a picture so that it helps us to pass on wisdom. And I think it's a very effective way of doing it. The reason is because all of us think in pictures, right? We, are, we, we don't think in sentences. We actually think in pictures. For example, if I ask you to think of London, think of the city of London, what comes to your mind? Big Ben, that's right. Immediately, you, you, there are images that come. You think of Big Ben, you think of red double-decker bus or Buckingham Palace. Maybe you think about London Bridge. If I ask you to think about Paris, what comes to your mind? Eiffel Towers, right? Uh, you will start thinking about Art de Trombe. You, you, you think about all these images that reminds you of something that is true in your experience. We conjure up images, you know, of things. So in the same way, Proverbs are meant to capture images. They are meant to capture pictures that we can then use to pass on nuggets of wisdom from one generation to another. And that's why in the English world, when most of us are educated in the English world, we all have our Proverbs from the English world. For example, a stitch in time saves nine, right? A, a, a bird in the hand is better than two in the bush, right? Time and tight wait for no man. Better late than never, than never, right? These are the statements that we can recall straight away, okay? And it passes on wisdom. Now, English Proverbs are great, but I tell you, some other uh, cultures have even more interesting Proverbs that we've never heard of. I'll give you some. Here's some from the African world, okay? In the African world, I love African Proverbs. Here's one. When elephants fight, the ants get trampled. I like that. How many of you like that? When elephants fight, all the ants die. It's true, you know, right? The same way, right? With leadership fights, all the people suffer, right? Because it's true. Uh, here's another one. An egg should never pick a fight with a stone. Yeah, makes sense. You know, why would you pick a fight with a stone if you're an egg? Uh, here's another one. Here, I love this one. Every cow has a tail. Heard of that one before? You wonder, what is this? Actually, it's, it makes a lot of sense to the African world, you know. In the African world, things move a bit slower, right? So you look at a, uh, every house as a window, and then you see a cow walking past, very slow. But don't worry, soon enough, the tail will appear. Every cow has a tail. So what's the point? The point is, whatever you may be going through right now in your life, no matter how hard it is, don't worry, it will end there will always be a conclusion, okay? In the end, it's going to be okay. So that's how the Africans pass on that wisdom. Uh, here's one from the Indian world. If you cut off somebody's nose, it's no point giving him a rose to smell. Yep, makes sense, right? After you cut off someone's nose, no point giving him a rose. So you, after you offend somebody, it's no point telling him, you know, how good Jesus is. If you already offended him, that's the end. You cut off somebody's nose, they can no longer smell. So, all, what are all these? These are proverbs, 
pictorial things that we pass on wisdom. Now Solomon gave us a whole string of Proverbs from verse 1 to verse 10. Now at a cursory glance, it looks like just a whole lot of different gems of wisdom. That's what it appears to be. My question is, what is the thread, you know, that links all these pearls, these gems together? What is the common thread that runs through all of it? Okay, and when, when you observe carefully, you notice that all of these sayings are, are put in the form of contrast, death, life, you know, um, um, money and character. You know, it's all based on contrast. But here's the thing. I want to find out what is the string that ties all that together. And I'll tell you that at the end. But for now, I think it's good to look at each of these contrasts and then we see what we can pick up from there. I'll outline six of them for you. The first is this. The first contrast is between appearance versus authenticity. Look at Ecclesiastes 7 verse 1. A good name is better than fine perfume. You all agree? Every one of us want to make a good impression on the people around us, right? One quick way to do it would be to use perfume, right? Make yourself smell good. Now I can relate to you. Make a good impression, right? Or you can doll yourself up externally. You know, put on the right clothes, look good. You know, cosmetics, branded clothes, power dressing, behavior modification techniques, all of these things, they can make you look good on the outside. But the wise man is saying to us, there is a slower but better way. Instead of building on impressions on the outside through external means, why not build a reputation inside through authenticity? Don't let appearance lead the way, but let authenticity lead the way. And people will know after a while. Your reputation will build. You can do all you want on the outside, but ultimately when people know you, that's your real reputation. See, authenticity rather than appearance. Being comes before doing. Integrity rather than image. That is wisdom. The world tells us that what we drive, what we wear, what we eat, what we drink, what we do on the outside is the key to success. But the wise man says, who we are inside matters more than what we do or how we look on the outside. You see, authenticity above appearance. Charles Morrison, a Christian thinker, once made this statement, and I love it. It goes like this. He said, the crisis of Christianity is that the center of gravity has shifted. The crisis in Christianity is that the center of gravity has shifted. See, and the center of gravity of the disciples of Jesus Christ must always be our inner life. It is our inner world that is the center of gravity. It's not what is on the outside, it's what's on the inside. That's the real center of gravity for, for the followers of Christ. See, the depth of our inward relationship with God, that is the true measure of our discipleship. But unfortunately, that center of gravity has shifted and we can end up substituting achievements for authenticity, status for substance, charisma for character. We can end up substituting personality for personhood, image instead of integrity. We aim for success rather than to reach a place of significance. And what has, what has happened? The center of gravity has shifted from that which is inside to that which is outside. 
So this first contrast is a very important one. The wise man wants us to note that between external appearance and internal authenticity, which is more important? And here's the challenge. Let us restore our spiritual center of gravity. That is our inner life. Come back to our inner world. That's the first contrast. Authenticity, appearance. Here's the second one. He talks about death versus life. Here's a very important one. Ecclesiastes 7 goes on to say this. The day of death is better than the day of birth. We find that really hard. Normally, we celebrate the day of birth, right? We don't celebrate the day of death. But in the context of wisdom, the wise man says the day of death is better than the day of birth. Why? Because death often forces us to ask the right questions about life. Is that true? In the face of death, all of our values are redefined. In the face of death, we are forced to ask ourselves important questions about life. If not, right, when everything is just easy, everything is just flowing along, we don't think very much about life. We just live it and enjoy it. But when you face death, you begin to ask real questions, deep questions. Uh, I told you all, uh, once before that in, in, in the year 1977, I was part of a, a scout group in Singapore. And at that time, I was in high school, and my principal was a very, very good principal for many years in, in the school, and he was about to retire. So as a group of Boy Scouts, we decided that we're going to do something to make him remember us for life. We're going to give him a parting gift. So we were thinking and racking our brains, you know, what is the parting gift that will make him remember us for life? We came to this conclusion. We're going to do something others don't, which is we're going to go and climb the highest mountain in West Malaysia called Gonong Tahan. Uh, at that time, the, it was the, 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 the Malaysian army that holds the climbing record, which is about three days and, and two nights. That was a, the, they went all the way up, came all the way down. It took about three days, two nights. That was like the climbing record. We were going to go as a bunch of 16, 17-year-old kids. We're going to break that record and then we'll give him this broken record as his parting gift. Wow. We took six months to prepare ourselves to go on this trip. It was, a, it was a huge climb and it took us six months to prepare. I remember taking um, harvest sacks, you know, filled with rocks, you know, all of us, little 16, 17-year-old kids and we would take this harvest sack and we would go to the uh, apartment block that is 18 stories high so you run up one side of the staircase, you run up 18 stories, run across the, the, the veranda, and then you run down the other side, and then you run across again, you go up and down, up and down, up and down, five, six times. That was our training. For months we did that. I tell you, at the end of six months, I was lean, man. I was mean. I was fit, you know. <laughs> this body wasn't like that before. <laughs> it was really good, you know. And we were ready for the climb. And we went for it. In fact, we created such a big hoo-ha that the national press actually came, took pictures of us and said, oh, these boys are going to climb the record and this and that. And we went. And 35 of us went up the mountain, but only 34 came down alive. My really good friend died on the way down from the peak. And I tell you, that incident literally changed my perspective on life forever. You know, when you watch a friend, a close friend, 
die before your eyes, you know, and I happened to be climbing, right? We, we all had to climb single file. He was very close to me. So when he died, I had to, I had to hold his, his, his body, you know, and I, I saw blood coming out from all the seven holes, you know, where the seven openings, your eyes, your nose. I think he died from altitude sickness and all this blood flowing out. And it, you cannot, as a 16, 17-year-old, look at that and don't have your life impacted, you know. And we ended up having to because he died, we couldn't carry him. And all we could do was put a little tent, put his body inside, and we waited for rescue to come. And the only way, at that time, we don't even have mobile phones, so the only way they can let people know we're in trouble is for the guide to actually climb downhill, go all the way down, inform the police, and then they send a helicopter to actually come and get us. We had to wait for two days at the site. And I guarantee you that two days in the mountain with my friend's body, we waited there for two days, waiting for rescue. Nobody cracked a joke. Nobody said anything corny, you know. It was a very, very sobering time. We sat around, deep in our own thoughts. Occasionally, we get together, and we talk about life. We talk about death. We talk about meaning. We talk about purpose. We talk about significance. We talk about relationships. We talk about faith. And... That's all we did. And in the end, when I came down from that mountain, finally they arrived, they sent a helicopter, and then we had to climb down. The body went with the helicopter. And at the end of that whole incident, I made a resolve in my own heart. And my resolve then was this, that in my life, I'm going to use things and love people. I will not love things and use people. That was the thing I walked away from and from that moment on, I wanted to live my life for the right purpose and for the right things. And I think God used that incident, painful as it was, to actually begin the process of pointing me towards my calling. And that's how I end up doing what I'm doing today. God used that incident to actually start pointing me towards my sense of call. I think the wise man observed the same thing. He says, celebration makes, can make a man unthinking, but funerals bring deep thoughts. And to the Christian, to all of us as followers of Jesus Christ, death is not a candle, you know, where we, we just burn out. But for us, death is a candle that is put out, not because it's, it's finished, you know, but it's because the dawn has come. So for us, you know, to come into death is because it's, it's not the end. It's the start of a new life in God, you see. And to the Christian, that's what it is. So you listen to some of the, the words, you know, of godly men just before they take their last breath. And I was looking at the, the last words of uh, godly people and I read for you one or two. John Knox, the Martha, this was his last words before he died. He said, live in Christ and the flesh need not fear death. Live in Christ and the death and the flesh need not fear death. Martin Luther said, Our God is the God from whom comes salvation. God is the Lord by whom we engage death. And I love the one by John Wesley. When John Wesley died, his last words were this Best of all, God is with us. Best of all, God is with us. And I think death makes our heart wiser. And yet, you know, we try to avoid the subject of death because it's a taboo to so many of us. And particularly those of us who are Chinese, you know. We, we hate talking about death. Is that true? 
Oh, you are so Australian already. Okay, no problem. But I grew up in a culture where we cannot talk about death. And particularly so during Chinese New Year. You know, my parents will warn me days before Chinese New Year, make sure you wash your mouth. You know, make sure no death words come out of you. In fact, in the Chinese world, you mention death on Chinese New Year, your mom will kill you. You know, literally. And it's true. And why? Because we don't like to talk about death. But yet, the wise man says, you know, it's better to go to a house of mourning than a house of feasting. Why? Because in the context of wisdom, it is in, when we go through trials, and when we go through difficult times, and we go through death, that's where we grow in wisdom. Look at verse 2 now. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, for death is the destiny of every man. Now, when we are celebrating, enjoying life, it is easy to become frivolous. And in times like this, carelessness, foolishness can take over. That's why you look at verse 3 and 4. Sorrow is better than laughter. Why? Because a sad face is good for the heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the hearts of fools in the house of pleasure. Now, please understand, this does not mean that we cannot enjoy life. It doesn't mean we cannot celebrate life. In fact, we should. We should celebrate life. But when we face death, it actually helps us appreciate life. However, the wise man is telling us that whilst we are enjoying life, never forget that death waits at the end of every road that a man may choose to go down. And therefore, live wisely. Live with the end in mind. Live with the fact that death in the end will greet us. That's why the Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15 to 17, he says this, Be very careful then how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Appearance, authenticity, death versus life. Here's the third one. Flattery versus feedback. I like this one. Flattery versus feedback. Look at verse 5 and 6 now. It is better to heed a wise man's rebuke than to listen to the song of fools. Like the crackling of thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of fools. This too is meaningless. You know, Solomon goes on to actually tell us, it is better to listen to the warnings of the wise than the flattering of fools. Now, it may be more fun to listen to, to people who tell you nice things, but it may not last. See, none of us here uh, like it, right, when we are told we are wrong. None of us like feedback or correction and rebuke, but often it is what it takes to move us from foolishness to wisdom. How many of you amen that? It is the ability to take feedback, the ability to take rebuke and correction that make us wiser. You know, it's, it's, it is just, if we just always say nice, flattering things to one another all the time, it may be warm and fuzzy, which is great. But in the end, it is like a brunch with thorns you put in the fire. You know, if, if you ever had brunches with thorns and then you put it in the fire, you know what will happen? It go pop, 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 pop. Why? Because in every thorn, there are some air pockets. So you put it in the heat, it, ex it expands, and then pop, it goes crackling sound. And that's why you, every time you put a campfire, you hear crackling sound. It's because of all these air pockets. See, and 
if we say nice things, we just flatter one another, which we do that quite a lot, right? <laughs> because we want to encourage people. Nowadays, you almost like, you encourage people for, sometimes quite meaninglessly, you know. <laughs> we, we, it, it can actually backfire on us. Huh? We, we always say all the nice things without actually meaning it. You know, well done, ooh, awesome, man. Ooh, awesome. Everything is so awesome. You know? <laughs> but in the end, it, it's just, it's it just like the, the, the thorns that go into the fire, you go pop, 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 and it's gone. Say it, and pop, it's gone. That's it, that's the end. But sometimes, the wise man says, you know, if we have, it's, 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 it's like going to a party, you know, lots of noise and laughter and fun, but when it's over, nothing really remains. Nothing deep really happens. Your inside is still empty. It is still hollow. But wise is the man who is willing to listen to honest feedback from people who really care for us, and sometimes even from people who are critical of us. There's always a nugget of wisdom if we can learn from it. In a world that is preoccupied, you know, with praises and, and frivolity, I think we must learn from rebuke. Uh, I have a few people like that in my life, and I'm thankful for them. Uh, my wife is number one. You know, <laughs> she will not say the nice things all the time to me, and she will honestly tell me, um, I preach a sermon and sometimes people will say, well done, you know, very nice, I enjoy it. My wife will come back and say, actually, uh, that but. <laughs> and then she'll tell me the truth. And it's okay, you know, because that's how we learn, you see. But if we're willing to take feedback, we think take rebuke. And, then, and I do get some from people who write to me and tell me where I, they think that, you know, I did not treat the, the passage well. Not, I think we can all learn. Our whole preaching team critique one another. Uh, before this sermon comes up, we sit down around the table, we talk about it, and sometimes they send me an email and tell me, uh, this, you know, we can make it better. And that's how we can all improve. So the contrast between flattery and feedback. Okay, here's another one, very important one too. Cash versus character. You look at verse 7 now. He says, extortion turns a wise man into a fool, and a bribe corrupts the heart. The wise man is literally saying to us that to the wise, character is placed above wealth. You know, in, in bribery, every time we transact with bribes, both the one who pays and the one who receives have compromised their integrity. See? And the wise man is challenging us, don't let cash overtake your character. And wisdom tells us character must be above cash. Someone put it this way, when wealth is lost, Nothing is lost because you can always earn it back. But when health is lost, something is lost. When character is lost, then all is lost. You lose your character and you lose everything. See, and the wise men make that contrast telling us that if we live our life with wealth and prosperity but with no character, then it becomes meaningless. Jesus put it this way, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, but he loses his own soul. Cash versus character. Here's contrast number five. Starting versus ending. Here's a good one. Starting versus ending. Look at verse eight now. The end of a matter is better than its beginning. Patience is better than pride. Do not be quickly provoked in your spirit, for anger resides in the lap of fools. Here you see a contrast between starting and ending. And the point the wise man is making is this. If you want to be wise, remember this. It's not how you start, it's how you end that really matters. It's not how you start, it's how you end that really 
matters. How often it is, you know, that we all start projects that we never end. Right? We start things that we never end. Why? Because somewhere along the way, we lose interest. Or we get distracted with other stuff. Or we simply lack the perseverance, the tenacity to follow things through. So we start it, but it never ends. And the wise man says, it's not how you start. We can all start with a big, blind, big bang, you know. But it's how you end that really matters. And this is particularly important as we come into a world of instant gratification. And today, we do live in a world of instant gratification. We got instant everything, Instagram, you know, instantly you can see everything that goes on. And, and in a world of, 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 um, of instant gratification, one of the things that go out of the window is the ability to wait, the ability to be patient, the ability to just see things through. It don't always happen. How many of you agree with that? You know, and it is like that. And we tend, in a world of instant gratification, we tend to underrate consistency, then we overrate impact. You know, we like things that has great impacts quickly. And then we, un- we overrate that, and then we underrate consistency. Take for example, you know, I can ha- try to build a relationship with my wife by... Every year, I make sure I take her on a world-class holiday. You know, high impact, you know. I really give her the fine dining, all the very best of things, you know. For that one week, I'm going to spoil her rotten. And then that is going to keep my marriage strong. (laughs) No, no, no. That high impact event, which is great to have, by the way, it's not, not saying don't have it. Okay, have it. But, but it cannot replace the consistency of waking up every morning and say, I love you, dear. It cannot replace the weekly dates, you know, that we have with our spouse to build up that relationship. Are you with me here? It's not that the high impact thing that we do. It is that consistent little things that we do. It's not that one camp that we can go to once a year, we have a high-impact encounter with God, come back, transform. One week later, backslide again. But it is that daily spending time with God consistently that really builds our relationship over the long haul. Am I right to say that? It's not how you start, it's how you end. It's how you consistently see through. And what is it that see it through? It's not... Pride, you know, it's patience. They will help you see it through. And in a millennial world that we lived in, all the more we need to be reminded, it takes patience. It's not, don't overrate impact and underrate consistency. Sometimes you talk to people, you know, how's your, how's your work? Are you ex- enjoying it? No, I'm about to quit already. Huh? Why you want to quit? Uh, I'm not making an impact. How long have you been in it? One month already. Oh, one month you expect to make impact. Maybe one year and see if something will change. John Sam saying, How's your ministry? I'm about to quit. How come? Not making an impact. How long have you been there? Three months. Three months you expect to change the world? Try three years. We tend to under we tend to overestimate what can happen in, in three months. And then we underestimate what can happen in three years. It's not how you start, it's how you end that really matters. The and it is it is the ability, you know, to see things through. And that's what it takes. True success is not just about starting well. It's about finishing well. And in this regard, I take my hat off to the late evangelist, Billy Graham. I think he was, he not only started well, I think he finished well. 
Do you know, I was reading his biography and I came across this incident that was his, one of his highlight points. Billy Graham, actually, do you know, he preached his final crusade in New Orleans Arena. And in the city of New Orleans is where he first started as a young evangelist. That was his first uh, crusade. He wanted to end there as well in, the, in New Orleans. On the final evening of the crusade, he stood up and there was a packed crowd of about 16,000 people in the stadium. He stood up and then he made this statement. It was the final night. He says, while we have seen God do tremendous things here in the past few evenings, we have seen healing and salvations occur within this auditorium. But there lies, uh, there lies a great mountain in this city that needs to be conquered. And he was actually referring to Bourbon Street, which is the red light and crime district of New, uh, New Orleans. And then he stood up and he read from Joshua chapter 14, where, Jake, uh, where Caleb stood before the people of Israel and he read this passage to the people. He said, I am this day, and he's he kind of making reference to himself, you know, with, uh, using Caleb. I am this day 85 years old, and I'm as strong this day as on the day Moses sent me. Just as my strength was then, so now is my strength for war, both for going out and for coming in. Now, therefore, give me this mountain of which the Lord spoke in that day. Then he turned to the crowd and he said, I last preached in the city of New Orleans in 1954. And I felt that there was some unfinished business. And tonight, in my last evangelistic service, I aim to finish that business and lead as many of you that would follow me to the multitude of lost souls that filled Bourbon Street. That is my mountain. And this is where we shall see the harvest. And then the stadium erupted you know, into cheers that lasted for the next several minutes. And then... Billy Graham started walking and the, almost the entire stadium, the crowd of 16,000, stood to their feet and they followed Billy Graham for 20 minutes marching towards Bourbon Street. And they were singing this song as they go, oh, when the saints go marching in. And they entered Bourbon Street, the group started to share the gospel with the crowd coming in and out of the pubs. Billy Graham himself ministered to a depressed man that just survived uh, so just survived uh, Hurricane Katrina. And that's why some of you saw a picture of him kneeling and talking to someone. That was a picture taken. Within 30 minutes, the glory of God came down into Bourbon Street that night. And many people were seen pouring their drinks you know, away on the side of the road, asking for prayer with tears and repentance. One policeman that was there said this, I've never seen anything like this in my life. This is unbelievable. We thought a riot was going to break out. But this looks more like a revival than a riot. And two hours later, Billy Graham smiled and said this, Now I know how the Apostle Paul must have felt at the end of his ministry. Do the work of an evangelist. Make foolproof of the ministry, for I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I fought the good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept my faith. Billy Graham, brothers and sisters, was a man who not only started well, but he also finished well. That is my prayer. We heard Pastor Bob spoke to us at our staff meeting last week, and he shared the same thing about finishing well. My prayer, my hope, my dream is that one day, maybe years from now, people can look back and say the same thing. Yeah, Benny started and he finished well. That would be awesome. And that, brothers and sisters, is what we aim for.
It's not how you start. It's how you end that really matters. And he tells us the secret to it in that final contrast, which is patience versus pride. And I'd like you to notice that in this final contrast, it was a contrast between patience and pride rather than patience versus impatience, right? It's patience versus pride. Why? Because it's in the context of starting and ending. In the immediate context, the wise man is also telling us one of the major hindrances to ending well is our ego. One of the major hindrances for any one of us finishing well is our pride. Now, I remember still being involved in the insurance industry when I was still in Singapore. I do, a lot of, I do training for them. I saw a lot of high flyers and who burst onto the industry you know, in a blast. And then they well, screeched, really shoot their way to the top really fast, you know, like overnight. They come in, they really did well, boom, they're at the top of the sales chart. And then they get featured you know, in all the magazines. Their photos get plastered all over the company newsletter. Their names are mentioned with reverence you know, almost in the corridors of the, of the office. You know, oh, do you know this guy? Oh, he did this, he did that. It was just amazing. But then within a year, they run out of steam and they're gone. It's like they shoot to the top and the next thing you know, they run out of contacts and that was the end of it. And that was the end. And I've seen so many budding leaders rushing onto the scene, making changes, seeking to make a high impact, but wisdom demands that we be patient enough, work the ground, win the hearts before we move the hands. It takes patience to do that kind of thing. It takes patience to build relationship. And only then will we start well, last the journey, and then we finish well. And the wise man is telling us, don't be proud when you started well, but let patience help you to end well. We can take pride in starting well, but it is patience, tenacity, perseverance, the ability to just do the consistent thing that will cause us to see things through and in the final analysis, really end well. I give you six things. All of this are true and each of it seems like a gem of wisdom in itself. The question now is this, what is it that links all this together? What is the wise man seeking to tell us in all of this? And I think here's the main lesson. Basically, what the wise man is telling us is this. A wise person will live with the long-term view in mind. A wise, a person of wisdom will always consider the long-term consequence Think about the long-term benefits and not just the short-term gains. Now, you consider them again, right? Appearance versus authenticity. Life, death, flattery, feedback, cash, character, starting, ending, pride, patience. How many of you agree? All this side, is short. it will get you a lot of short-term benefits. But when you think about the long-term, you will choose this. Because that's, the long-term view. Isn't it true that one set will get you the short-term gains, but it's the other set that gives you long-term impact? And Solomon observed that the wise person is the one who lives with a long-term view in mind. Now, go ahead, live in the present, embrace, enjoy the moment, but at the same time, keep the long-term view in mind in all of your decision-making. I think this is the tension that we need to hold, you know, that wisdom will demand of us. 
which is this. This is a good definition of wisdom. Wisdom is the ability to balance the demands of any given situation in the fear of the Lord. What is wisdom? I think wisdom is the, it's, it's not a formula. You know? a, a person of wisdom doesn't operate on formulas. What do, what do they operate on? We operate on this. The ability to balance the demands. In, in any situation, there's always a lot of demands, right? The wise man is the one who is able to balance the demands in any given situation, but guided by what? The fear of the Lord. It's the fear of the Lord that will guide us. See, that's the difference between a person of wisdom in the world versus a person of wisdom in God. It's the fear of God. It's not just about doing what we think is right. It's about doing that which is right in the sight of God, according to who God is, according to what God says. It's the fear of God that will guide us and teach us how to hold the tension in all the demands in any given situation. And, and it's true everywhere, whether it's in an organization or in a church, it's the same. There's so many situations and it needs the wisdom of God. See, and whatever mistakes we made in the past, we don't let it stop us from moving into the future with godly wisdom. So Ecclesiastes 7.10 ends by saying this, don't say why were the old days better than this, for it's not wise to ask such questions. You know, this is true in this life and it's true beyond into eternity. What about you and I this, this afternoon? Do we live with the long-term or the short-term view? You know, do we, do we live like people of destiny? Do we have this sense of, uh, do we sometimes, you know, for the sake of temporal gains, uh, forsake, you know, things of eternal value? Do we trade the favour of God for short-term gains? And Solomon is challenging us, all of us this morning, be wise. And if we, before you do something, we ask ourselves, what is the long-term consequence of making this choice? That's wisdom. That's wisdom. Now, let me end with this. The only problem with Solomon's advice is that his long-term view was not quite long enough. Because remember for him, um, it ends at the grave, right? His perspective was uh, under the sun as long as I live. But for us who live in the New Testament, I want you to know that we can go above the sun and we can go beyond the grave. Where then is wisdom to be found today for us as New Testament believers? I think wisdom is ultimately found. Where is the source? It's ultimately found in a hill called Calvary. That's where our source of wisdom is. You know, men break up mountains you know, to look for God, but wisdom is found on a little hill outside Jerusalem called Calvary. The Apostle Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 20, verse 21, uh, 22 to 24. Jews demand miraculous signs. Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to Gentiles. And to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Therein is the ultimate source of wisdom. Solomon groped around in desperation to search for wisdom and he knows that life would make sense if he can find wisdom but he didn't look far, be, far enough. Today, I think you and I 
If we can go to a hill called Calvary, where we find an old rugged cross, and the Son of God was crucified. And in Him, we find the ultimate wisdom. That was foolishness to men, but it was the wisdom of God. We come to the cross this morning, we put our trust in this all-wise God. Then we stand at the cross, and, and from the cross, we can look into eternity. And true wisdom is when we live life with eternity in mind. Beyond even the grave, true wisdom is when we can live with eternity in mind. That's wisdom, ultimate wisdom. Amen. Many of us make this, have to make decisions every day. Some of you could be standing at a crossroad where you need to make a critical decision. May the Lord just download wisdom for us today. And we will make it in the light of eternity. We make it in the light of the fear of God. And I believe the Lord can guide us in our decision making and make us wise. We don't live for the short term. We live for the long term. Amen. Why don't we stand together, shall we? Thank you, Lord. I invite you to stand with me. Why don't we take a few moments this, this, this uh, afternoon. Just tune off for a while, the people around you, and close your eyes and allow your focus to come unto the Lord. Looking unto Jesus because He is the ultimate source of wisdom. And we look to Him and ask Him to guide us in our decision-making. So I was preparing for this. I know some of you here may be standing at a crossroad needing to make critical decisions. Perhaps the Lord will give you, through this time that we share together in the Word, the Lord may give you a nugget of wisdom that we will not live, and as we make this decision, we make it in the light of the long-term view. We make it in the light of eternity. We make it in the light of who God is and what God says. And then let the Lord guide you in your, in your decision. So let's worship the Lord as we close in this song. And then you lift that decision before the Lord and say, God, help me make a wise decision. Let's worship Him and then I'll pray with us.